Lately, I've been pondering ponds. I even entered one, trying to clean it up. The funny thing about ponds is they're full of things that we can't see without a microscope. A real cleanup requires understanding the role that each little microbe plays in making the pond flourish by feeding larger organisms or by supplying oxygen and other vital or possibly even toxic compounds. We step into the muck if we dare. Our good intentions take us to the plastic bottles and the styrofoam cups that people carelessly toss into the water. Those are obvious. We know they don't belong. But to optimize the pond's awesomeness, we'll need some deeper understanding here. We might have to submerge ourselves entirely, top hats and all. All this is an analogy. Moral and ethical theories, political theories, religious theories, economic theories, theories of social transformation, all exist together in the pond of life. And they work the same way. Some things obviously don't belong. Other things require more thought. In a cleanup effort, it's easy to get help with the plastic items that are on the surface. Everybody can see those. It's harder to get help with the complexity of who knows what's lurking at the bottom of the pond. But it's actually that subtle, harder to understand stuff that matters the most. What if it kills all the fish and the plants? What if it kills us? Today, we're going to explore it. Ready? You've discovered the Pemology Society podcast. Join us on our journey as we explore the maximization of awesomeness, one ray of light at a time. And now, the host of today's episode, the Pemology Society's founder, James Carvin. I'll start with a quick review. We started coming down from a very high mountain of metaphysics, where we'd asked what the most awesome thing possible could be. We'd learned to put on a multiversal mindset in asking questions like what we were, seeing that maximized awesomeness was true. In other words, God is real. From there, we descended into our own world, the world of axiology. We asked how to maximize awesomeness in this world, and I told you we would try to build from the ground up. But seeing that many others had already done the same thing, I thought it would be a good idea to take an inventory of what had already been said. What was already in the ecosystem here? What was already in that pond? How did it all work together? The first thing I pointed to in the pond that looked like it might be worthy of optimizing was Aristotelian virtue ethics. Aristotle introduced us to the idea that the best way to live is to acquire the ability to judge where the optimal balance is between too much or too little of a good thing. We looked at the example of honesty. While deficient honesty may be an obvious flaw of character, it's easy to take the position that there can be no such thing as being too honest. But really? No, you can actually have too much honesty. What if someone confesses to you all of their personal flaws? Is that a good thing? Well, you might think so. But what if you had 10 employees and the other 9 had worse flaws than an exceptionally honest 
penitence employee you happen to have, but they were all keeping quiet about their flaws. How would that affect your decisions? With Aristotle, you got to know when to hold them and when to fold them. Aristotle gets criticized for not being specific enough about that. He doesn't really have a system. People do like systems. They like stuff that they can just paint by the numbers with. Aristotle did have systems, but not when it came to virtue. All Aristotle has here is a general description of character. For an actual system of morality, we might turn to Immanuel Kant. Kant satisfied the common demand for a moral system with a sort of one-size-fits-all theory. With Kant, you can make up ethics as you go, since every situation is going to be different, but just stick to a few basic rules. Number one, ask yourself what the world would be like if everybody did what you're considering doing. And number two, don't use people. Those two things alone would constitute your duty. Anything else you do wouldn't be duty. It's just stuff that would make you happy, even when you do good things and it makes you happy. It's not necessarily duty to do that. Kant reduced morality to duty because duty is something that logic tells us that we should all understand and embrace. It's what he called a categorical imperative. Society breaks down without a categorical imperative. We'll add this simplified version of Kant's categorical imperative to our tool set, but it won't be the only tool in the shed. A lot of people embraced Kant's system. Look closely, though. Kantian ethics aren't the same as utilitarianism or consequentialism, which were also very popular. Utilitarianism looks for maximized awesomeness in the net end effect of a decision. Consequentialism is more self-interested. In consequentialism, or any form of utilitarianism for that matter, it's good if the net result is good for the most people and their cumulative happiness. In consequentialism, it's good if you personally gain by the action. Or maybe the company that you work for or the team you're with. Even though Kant asked what the world would be like if everybody did what you did, he was neither a utilitarian nor a consequentialist. For Kant, the ends don't justify the means. The means have to be rejected if anybody gets used or abused or stepped on in the process. It'd be better if there was no losers in the outcome, wouldn't it? Of course it would. Kant was right about that. All this applies to personal decision-making, of course, and Kant, and the utilitarians as well, might have applied their theories to corporate or national decision-making as well. So let's take a look at some of the bigger critters in the pond. If our corporations and our nations lived virtuously, wouldn't that be sweet? Do you find that nations and corporations live according to self-interest? Do you find they use and abuse one another as a means to their ends? What principles do they apply? How might that apply to where you work? It's something to think about. Now, not everybody agrees with Kant. There are other ways of looking at things. Before Plato and Socrates and Aristotle, there was Homer. 
In Homer's world, people who were deceiving and hurting others for personal gain, people like Achilles and Odysseus, were lauded by the population for centuries. It's a timeless thought, actually, even in the Christian era. After the Middle Ages, Machiavelli wrote a book for rulers recommending winning by any means, using virtue only ostensibly as a way to get ahead, gaining as much power as possible. That's what mattered. There have always been physicalists and materialists, people who don't believe in any heavenly being, people who don't believe there's anything more in this life than the physical stuff that you can see and touch. There's no shortage of people who've thought about this either. A lot of people have asked the same question, basically, in every single age. If the physical world is all that there is, then what's the point of morality? Machiavelli asked that question, even though he was the son of a pope, a pope who broke the rules at least once, obviously. And not all who disagreed with Kant were materialists, though. Friedrich Hegel, for instance, like Kant, was a very religious person. Hegel introduced another helpful tool for measuring the pond. He was an early 19th century German philosopher who was interested in the gist of things, or in German, Geist. Or in other words, the spirit of the times. Geist is German for ghost, as in Holy Ghost. Hegel asks the question, what is the spirit of God and of the devil doing in humanity? What is the common mind saying? Where is it leading? What is the gist of what's going on in the spiritual realm of the human mind? Hegel was looking at the whole pond, asking not about what its chemical composition was, so much as what the pond did, and what it was going to do in the future, and ultimately become, given its spirit. To compare them, Kant is like the Moses of the pond, giving a post-Christian world the law without a church or a Bible, and Hegel's like the Elijah of the pond, giving the post-Christian world prophecy without a church or Bible either. Hegel was concerned with the direction of humanity as a whole, and that started a trend in the philosophical world that still hasn't ended. We all want to coach the whole world from the sidelines these days, don't we? We all want to control the outcome of the human experiment. I know I do. And we want to know where it all goes in the end. Hegel looked at humanity as a maturing, single organism whose mind or spirit was in a learning process, a journey. The life of all humanity, like the life of any individual, was a trip. If there was a general consensus about how to look at the world that might represent the spirit of the times in any given age, there were also critics that would come along, noticing its flaws. Their voices would then get louder and louder until change had to happen. Then, when that change became the new normal, their new synthesized way of thinking would itself become subject to criticism. There was a pattern in the history of philosophy, a cycle of thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. Hegel looked at all of history that way, seeing it as a sort of volley of settled ideas that would then get disrupted and replaced, only to have the new way of thinking subsequently become disrupted and replaced itself. Like a conversation where two people are talking and learning from one another, ideally growing in their ideas. Hegel called this dialectic, as in a dialect, a language. Better yet, 
Hegel didn't just look backwards at this historic dialogue. He looked into the future to see where this ebb and flow of epoch spirits would ultimately take the world. Where was the conversation headed? And he thought he had an answer. His own thoughts would be the culmination of its thinking. His human introspection, his self-reflection of humanity as a whole became the new spirit of our own times. Hegel was incredibly arrogant in thinking this. Historians in general have a way of judging the past and exempting themselves from its faults as if they had learned all of its lessons. It's a human trait. Hegel's dialectics led to Karl Marx. Unlike Hegel, Marx was a physicalist who replaced dialectical idealism with dialectical materialism. He was an atheist whose thought about the human condition would ultimately center around man's most common activity, work. He saw a shift not just in philosophical thinking, but a tension between owner and worker classes in the industrial age. He took up where Adam Smith left off on the division of labor for the sake of efficiency. And like Hegel, he looked ahead. He noticed that workers were always alienated from their own work because the efficient division of labor would always mean doing more work for less money as the competition increased. Now, I think you know about the communist revolutions that took place in Russia, China, Eastern Europe, and South America that were inspired by Marxist theory, so I won't repeat all that. But if you think about it, the revolutionary spirit was alive and well long before Marx. It took over right around when America was born, in the Enlightenment age, thanks to writers like Rousseau and Locke in Europe, and also thanks to something very mechanistic about the Industrial Age itself. The Industrial Age was an age of reason. And sort of like factories, our reason was very mechanical. Conscient ethics were a matter of pure reason, very mechanical. Looking at the big picture in Hegelian terms, expansionist communism was just an extension of the revolutionary spirit of the industrialist rationalist age. At that time, thanks to Darwin and Galileo, Traditional Christian morals and authority were subject to question, as Hegel showed. Genesis was replaced by the Big Bang, ultimately. Historians, philosophers, educators, scientists, they all took part in rejecting religious tradition in favor of ideals of reason and of science. America was founded on religious freedom as an ideal. Europeans thought Americans were idealists. I don't know if I agree with that. Idealism is sort of naive, I think. The Constitution seems to be pessimistic to me, even cynical. It's designed to protect the people against a predictably abusive government, as if no government would ever be capable of living according to ideals. But I'll leave that subject for another day. My goal here is just to summarize what we find in the pond and to see if it needs to be tweaked at all for the optimization of awesomeness. Religion lingers on in the pond as a remnant, but it's no longer the dominant force in what we might call the human mind as a whole. All this variety of philosophical thinking both physicalist and dualist whirls around in that pond together with all of the religious traditions that there are to this day. The Danish philosopher 
Soren Kierkegaard, like Kant, was deeply religious, but he was highly critical of Christianity and of various other religions and the deist philosophy that was popular in his time. As a missionary to Christian missionaries, he thought himself, he rejected both the rationalist spirit of Hegel, with his prophecy for the future of human thought, and the Kantian system of pure reason. They were both too rationalist. If Kant appealed to pure reason, Kierkegaard appealed to pure faith. In the Bible, Abraham is commanded by God to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. That command makes absolutely no rational sense at all. Kant, in a footnote, even admits that he would say that that passage couldn't have been God making this command because God is perfect and therefore would never ask anyone to violate a moral principle. For Kant, if everybody sacrificed their children, everyone would be dead. That would not be good. It would be horrible. Therefore, God could not have commanded Abraham to do this. Kierkegaard abandons reason. He loves the Abraham story precisely because it's so absurd. For Kierkegaard, there's nothing more exemplary for the man of faith than Abraham blindly doing just as God asks, not reasoning anything through. Of course, watch it, he was very poetic. He didn't always mean exactly what he said. He had a sense of humor. Now, he wrote two pivotal books, one titled Either and the other titled Or, to exemplify his point. Either a person is a person of the world, a person of the senses, which Kierkegaard would call an aesthetic life, or they're ethical people living a life of faith in the will of God. The aesthetic life is natural, it's physical, mechanical, earthly, sensory, pleasing the senses. It's carnal. Reason and the intellectual enterprise of philosophy, pleasing the mind as we think ourselves so smart, they're all part of the non-faith category, the non-ethical category. They just please the flesh. It's all about personal pleasure, even if it's intellectual. All of the lofty reasoning of Kant himself is just intellectual foreplay for the flesh in this. Kierkegaard thinks Kant's system is fleshly, it's carnal. It's all a distraction from the faith-based ethical life. There's really only one choice to make in life, either choose faith or choose the worldly system with all its endless and often sophisticated distractions. Ethical systems based on reason are nothing more than a distraction for Kierkegaard from the blind obedience that's the only other moral choice. Choose one or the other. There's nothing in between. Faith is a sort of trump card on philosophy this way. It's based on itself rather than on reason, just as reason is based on itself rather than on faith. Which sort of person are you, a person of faith or a person of reason? For Kierkegaard, it's impossible to be both. Then there's another side of Kierkegaard. His division of reason from faith opens up a new realm of philosophical thinking. What happens when you strip Christianity of its intellect? Christian intellect brought us something called teleology. Teleology is functionalism. It says that the function of sex is reproduction. Therefore, it's wrong to have sex that can't produce children. Taken to an extreme, even inside a marriage, one should not enjoy sex because enjoyment is not its function. And that's precisely the sort of rationalism within Christianity that Kierkegaard rejected. 
All he cared about was faith. Divine inspiration could be reasonable, but it didn't have to be. Reason flowed from the divine will. Divine will was not subject to reason and didn't stem from it. It just is. And so also morality. It just is. It exists in and of itself as part of the divine will by the creative work of the Holy Spirit. Now, for those of faith, Kierkegaard may have had something there. But for those who had already rejected religious tradition, whether full-on atheists or leaning toward the pantheism of a Spinoza or the deists, Kierkegaard's anti-rationalism left a sort of void that in the absence of a divine command had to be discovered somewhere else. So if we were going to do away with functionalism and rationalism, what would we replace it with? The only thing we had left is the fact that we existed, what we were. So, why not? How about humanism? How about existentialism, our own being? We knew that we were. I think, therefore, I am. Even Descartes had said that, without any definitions attached to that. So, as such, we were free to invent ourselves individually. Now, I'm not sure how healthy all this is. Among Christians, I do see a large number engaging in a sort of name-it-and-claim-it work of the Spirit as they move along with God irrationally, defining morality and the divine will as they go. And then among physicalists, I see a similar sort of problem. There, there isn't even a Bible to give them guidance. Morality itself, as well, will get tossed out as useless. How convenient that Kant and Hegel were destroyed by Kierkegaard. Each person could now decide what was right or wrong in their own eyes. Nietzsche was content with that. God himself was dead, and so was morality with him. There was no basis for anything to believe in. And finally, because of that, we could become fully human. We could even become Machiavellian and without any heavy guilt trips about it. So that leaves the pond an utterly dangerous place to be. No one can trust anyone else in it. Each creature there's in it to serve their own appetites. You're nothing more than a stepping stone to their gain. The advantage of being a rational animal is cunning and deception, and that's it. it. has nothing to do with overcoming any animal instincts we may have in favor of some higher goal. Maximizing kindness in the pond would certainly make life nicer for everyone, but if anyone suggests that's their hope, then run. It's a ruse. They're only interested in taking advantage of your gullibility. Your death is near. They lie. Run. Fortunately, Nietzsche was wrong. We started this inquiry from the high places of metaphysics for a reason. Precisely because I knew that in our descent into this valley, this very valley, we were going to encounter Nietzsche in the scum of the pond found at its lowest point. So let's circle back. God is not dead. Neither is virtue. Nor are worlds beyond our own. And indeed, there is right and wrong. There is good and bad, even if there's no evil. I've proven this in my free Pomology 101 course, where you can earn yourself a top hat if you pass. Try it. You'll never be the same. Existentialism only leads to nihilism for those who choose or let into unbelief. 
Kierkegaard gave birth to existentialism in his rejection of Christian rationalism and teleology. But he wasn't himself an existentialist. He was a Lutheran fundamentalist. He was morally grounded in the words of the Bible, the ones that Luther didn't remove. Nietzsche and Kierkegaard were both philosopher poets who had incredible insight into the human psyche. No one questions their genius. They were highly lauded by the respective communities that followed them. They stand out as the best philosophy has to offer, even to this day, far ahead of the pack. Yet Nietzsche would laugh at Abraham. He would be triumphant in mocking God so that man might live and take credit for his own achievements. He'd want us to face death boldly rather than seeking an afterlife, seeing only what was right here, seizing its opportunities. Kierkegaard wouldn't likely exist in Nietzsche's world. Both would be fools to one another. So that's what's in the pond. As a materialist, Marx might have loved Nietzsche, as so many academicians have. A few communist leaders have turned atheism and Nietzschean humanism into national religions. Christians in Russia, when sent to the gulags under Brezhnev, were often considered insane. Bible believers today are often lumped together by progressives as hate groups. Conservatives, in turn, view this as something called TDS, Trump Derangement Syndrome. What we find in the pond is a sort of cognitive dissonance, an irreconcilable difference of visions and of beliefs. The only possible way to turn all this wisdom into a single system is to ask how we can manage its toxicity without exterminating or otherwise eradicating a significant portion of the pond. We've been sketching the philosophical world with a very broad brush here so that we could quickly get back to where pomology fits in with all this. Here we are at the bottom of the pond, getting a fair, if too quick, a look at what we're dealing with. We see that we can't reconcile it without some draconian measure, so we're going to have to leave it be. But I do think I have a solution that may reduce its acidity. I call it a pamelonomy. And if pamelonomies work, I think I can resolve some other problems as well. So, what is a pamelonomy? It's a socially conscious business enterprise, or an association of enterprises, that gives buyers and sellers some form of ownership, such as a voting class stock, royalties, or other rights and privileges that are based on individual participation, as agreed to by an original board of directors. Or alternatively, it can be a nonprofit business. Pamelonomies are strategically non-competitive. That is, they support one another for the sake of net social impact for the good of all. Now, if you read the mission statement for the Pamelogy Society, you'd see that pamelonomies are an important part of our work. We have a teaching arm, and we have a reaching arm. The teaching arm provides vision and direction. The reaching arm turns words into action through enterprise. As such, the Pomology Society is an incubator for strategic, high-impact concept stage enterprises such as the counterchecker. I'll use this one example to illustrate my point. 
The Counterchecker, you might recall, is a fact-checking website platform that I designed, which makes fact-checking accountable by opposing sides on any question. I've even described it as utilizing a Hegelian dialectical methodology. What I mean by that is that a set of facts will be presented, a sort of official set of facts, only to be challenged by other pertinent information regarding it that results in a new set of facts once it's hashed out by a counterchecker, someone on a different research team. Teams will typically be divided up based on ideological preference. Then, that set of facts, presented by an ideological opponent, is also subject to scrutiny and revision as well, and so on, until the idea is fully vamped and then revamped. Whereas most fact-checked sites serve to put an end to any discussion by favoring one side or the other with some definitive amount of research, the counterchecker begins a discussion and lets each side have all the input it's going to need, more like we would be doing in a trial where there was a prosecution and a defense. Presenting multiple sides, the counterchecker is an anti-censorship fact-check platform. Only, if you, as a research journalist, do have some counter-information to add, just be sure that you can back up your story. Each contributor gets graded. Scores will affect credibility. Think of it as your batting average. If you want a following as a journalist and you want to be paid more, then you need to do your homework. That's what the counter-checker is for. It's like a professional sport. And since it can cover any subject, it's actually going to be like a fact-checked Wikipedia in its final output for the end user. Very useful on any topic. Now, as a sport, it's going to be fun, not just useful. And it'll also be lucrative because it's a pamelonomy. If users of the platform own the stock, the research journalists will be in business for themselves. They won't just be paid for the traffic that they generate, they'll be paid dividends and can trade the stock that they've earned. There might also be royalty rights associated with the counterchecker. When the counterchecker is syndicated as a plug-in for social network platforms to use, like Twitter and Facebook, and even the conservative platforms might want to use it, even if they'd be otherwise opposed to using any sort of fact-checking, those platforms would have to pay the counterchecker for the use of its content, and that would convert to shares and royalties for the content contributors. Now, as I've said before many times, we need to raise $1.4 million to develop the counterchecker platform. So this is no easy task. Nothing is going to be developed without raising the money first. Now, to prevent that money from coming from outside investors so that it'll work better as a pamelonomy, it's going to have to come in the form of donations to the Pamelogy Society that are designated for the project. That's how pamelonomies work. I'll talk more about pamelonomies next time as I discuss how they solve some of the problems that are found at the bottom of the pond. For now, we're out of time. Ciao! Thank you for listening to the Pamology Society podcast. Transcripts of our podcast may be found at our website at pamology.com. We love it when you share them. Want to dig deeper? Complete our Pamology 101 course. It's free to subscribers, and you just may earn a top hat. If it would be good, it's true. I've got good news for you.